Welcome to the 15th webinar in the 2015-16 MGHS and HPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. Today our topic will be the consent to care, the why, when and what. Most of you and most of us in the healthcare system know a lot of things about consent. We have to. Why? Because we do ask for consent. There's not a single day probably that we don't ask for uh, obtaining consent. But what I would like to do is to add on on that and build on on what you already know and offer that as a reflection because I don't know if we do realize, even though it's fairly common that we do that, we may not realize how complex and how many underlying teams are under the consent to care. So this is what I want to expose today. This is what I want to show you, that a lot of things that we are not aware of, but that are part of obtaining great consent. Think about that all along the presentation, and hopefully you will have some interesting questions at the end of the presentation. So first, let's start with general concepts. And we, you know that, but again, let's build on, on those concepts. The first part will be on concept, general concepts, context of the decision-making, limitation of involved parties, models of decision-making, elements of consent, and the consent form. So basic stuff at this point. The second part will be consent for the patient lacking capacity. And as you know, consent, it's so much important thing that is that the patients deserve to be able to do so even though they are not able to do in a sense when they lack capacity. So therefore, there will be somebody to consent for them, and we'll go through that, the definition, the notion of advanced directives, and so on. Context of decision-making. So I don't know if we do realize, but obtaining a consent is not just a, a must, it's just something that we have to do, but it is kind of the cornerstone of medicine, of a practice, in a sense that this is where the professional a healthcare professional and the patient or the family representative will come together and will decide on the plan of care. So therefore, it's really in relation to communication. And this is something that we really need to understand fully. The better the communication will be between the two, the better probably the end result or the consent will be. That is to say, that what means communication means also all the influence on communication that we do have, all the barriers, the limitation that all of us do have first as healthcare professional, second also the patients has also some limitation, and third, the third party, the surrogate, the agent, the patient, or the person who would decide also have limitation. And oftentimes we are unconscious, we, we are not thinking about that. We know that, but not at the moment. And let me, this is what I'm thinking about, I'm saying about the reflection 
on consent to make you aware of those and to see how it does influence the way we obtain consent. On the physician, nurse, or healthcare professional providers, let's put that this way, the main barriers, this is not exhaustive, I'm sure there's many others maybe that you can find, but the main one will be the technical language. Um, even though we think this is simple terms, uh, sometimes we'll say, well, we'll check your hemoglobin, we'll do this, we'll do that, or we'll take a, a CT scan, and we go on and on using this language, and maybe not realizing necessarily so that the patient in front of us do not know what we are necessarily talking about in details. The second point is the medical uncertainty. And this is something extremely important. Uh, we often think, we often present the facts, the information to a patient, like if it was really something very uh, known, uh, objective facts. And we don't realize that oftentimes we, we do not know. It's a gray zone. Uh, example, when you talk about uh, to a patient or a family to obtain um, the consent for any test, or even the consent to withdraw some test. You are talking to them and you are presenting the facts, but we don't process everything. We don't know all the facts. Uh, the DNR is one of the uh, examples. How often time is it successful, not successful? And we present that like, you know, it's not a good thing, or maybe it will help, not help. And we don't have research, we don't have evidence base in all of that, we, our affirmations. So therefore, we are often in a gray zone, and we should be able that when we present that to the facts, the, to the patients and family, that this is the data are scarce, or we should be able to say that maybe we don't know. So again, the medical uncertainty is, is something that really is there, and in almost everything that we are presenting, some treatment or some therapies are better known, we know the pros and cons and so on and so forth, but uh, not all the time, and especially in, in our field, in palliative care, that is probably more true. All of us are optimists by nature. At least, this is what we think. And, uh, but we forget being optimists, and because we don't want to alarm the patient, that sometimes we try to present the nice part, the nice uh, part of a uh, information. Uh, it's like presenting the glass half full instead of half empty. So if I start, you know, I don't want to, to make the patient to be too uh, anxious or... Uh, so I will present, and we all do the same more or less. We all present the nice things at the beginning, and then the side effects or the complication and all of that, we'll present that in the second part, and that may influence a lot of the consent. Uh, you know, after a while, the patient is just sold out to what we are going to uh, ask him, and then he will forget the details that uh, may not be. So our intention is good, not to alarm the patient, not to make him anxious, but uh, doing so, 
we may tweak a little bit the information that we are saying. The time. We are all aware of time and explaining to a patient for obtaining a consent and giving the information, we'll see what is the requirement for that, uh, takes time. Takes time, energy, adaptation, and sometimes we don't have all of that. It is, a, by the way, let me open and close parentheses here, speaking of time. Uh, it's very interesting when I, I was interviewing recently uh, some of the physician uh, wants to come for a fellowship program, and I was asking them a major difference between what they are doing right now. Most of them are from internal medicine, family medicine, and so on. And what makes palliative care special? And they all have a sense that we have more time uh, to explain, to talk, to sit down. And it's probably true, especially uh, what's concerning the end-of-life issues or the advanced directive and all of that. We are, by definition, specialists in that domain. So time is of essence, and it's not something probably that we should invoke too often to uh, modify our obtaining of our consent. But still, time is, is of essence, and, and sometimes we are all caught by it. Denial and personal factors. Uh, we are not computers, we are human, and we all have our own values, our own set of values that sometimes, uh, or our own way of seeing advanced disease, uh, the ending, or any quality of life, all that influence a little bit what we are going to present to the family or to the patient. If you relate very well to, um, or if you had a certain experience, certain facts, you may sort of present that differently to a patient than you would otherwise. So we all have and we all carry our own baggage, and sometimes it does influence the way we see and we present things. Liability, uh, it, is, it is true. Uh, we all practice in a way uh, to be free of any lawsuit or to be free of any problem with the law and so and all be liable of any misconduct of some sort, including in obtaining consent. And therefore we are all a little bit afraid and we'll say we tend to say more information than less or tweak again the information because we are uh, maybe concern that something uh, will happen if we don't proceed correctly. Patient's limitation and barriers from the patient point of view. The understanding. Patients come to us with their own level of education, their own way, the way they are, their own values and so on, and they understand through all of those uh, even though you give objective, uh, objective sentences sometimes or objective information, it is not necessarily understood the same way it is said. And uh, as you all know, after a certain amount of time, and especially if you have some distraction or anything else that may change your uh, level of attention, obviously your understanding will take a toll as well. So, again, the understanding of people, uh, of patients and family can be sometimes 
very different than what was said. The inattentiveness or any other distraction that is around you, uh, including, I would say, the effect of the illness, the effect of medication. Oftentimes we talk to patients and family and we have a sense that they are all there. Well, don't forget we are talking to patients who are sick and or who may just have received some medication and, and they are not all understanding everything maybe that we do see because of that. I don't know if it did happen to you, but I'm sure it didn't must have happened at one time that you are there sitting there with family and they seem to say, well, can you come back? Or they even will tell you, can you come back to discuss that fully? It's not the proper time. I'm not well at this point on time. I feel nauseated, I have pain, uh, so and so forth. Patients have their own fear, their own anxiety, and their own denial. So all that will play also a role in what they hear because it will be filtered through that. You know, when you are anxious, you, you listen, but at the same time, you may not grab all the same information like if you were not having this level of interference. Trust. The notion of trust is extremely important. Uh, if it is not there, uh, even though you say certain things, the patient may change that because there's kind of a filter, again, that's another filter, through which it's not believable what you said because it, the trust is not there. Therefore, we may opt for another decision instead of that one because the trust is not there. The third party, the third party, these are the surrogate, these are the agents who will take decision for patient lacking capacity. Again, they ha have their own filters. Uh, the notion of guilt, denial, trust, loss. Guilt, uh, we all know those family who were never present and at the end when everything seems to be, you know, going a little bit faster and maybe the end is closer, well, they just come uh, from the West Coast, you know, you, you all know the East and the West Coast, so we always use that example. They were away for a long time, they were not really taking care of their, um, or very much concerned about the patient and now the sudden things are turning for the worse. And here they are coming and say, well, please do everything. Then they, they change a little bit the goals and they want certain things. Where were they all this time and why are they coming right now? So sometimes it's guilt feeling. Sometimes it's uh, denial. They, they were away. They were in denial. Now often they realize so their own uh, denial can interfere. Uh, with uh, what will with the plan of care, with the consent to care, the notion of trust also is the same as the for the patient. Uh, some family or agent cannot trust the the healthcare giver for multiple reasons. The notion of loss. Don't forget that when we are going to talk about um, patients to make decision, the family uh, understand that eventually they will lose uh, maybe the patient and eventually they will like to take a decision that would be different than the one of the patient who would like to continue a treatment uh, despite more or less encouraging, um, encouraging benefits from it uh, because they are so afraid to lose the patient. 
for good reason or bad reasons, we've seen them all. So, having all our barriers, limitation, uh, which I call that filter to the information that will come. Let's now change gear and go to what we call decision-making model. And I will present these three models and I will really uh, tend to spend more time to the one that we should probably all have and all favored because it's the best one. You remember that consent it was not what it used to be. In the 60s, uh, we had a good doctor coming and say, well, listen, um, I found uh, this and that, and therefore uh, we should have this operation, we should do this treatment, trust me, it will go that way, and that was it. And, and, and usually, uh, so the, the, the doctor was making the decision, the patient was informed, but so to speak, he was trusting the physician and will go well. This pattern was the paternalistic. We don't see that anymore, or very few, except if, by permission, sometimes some, some patients will say, hey, doc, I trust you, do what you think is best, and so on. But that's not really what we see really. There is what we call the informed choice model. Um, after the beginning of the consent, as you know, the doctrine of informed consent and the way we do apply it nowadays started probably in the late 80s. And at that point in time, uh, we, we went on the other side of the balance. So instead of physician making the, the, the decision, it was a patient. We were like machine and saying, well, uh, in this case, um, in this type of uh, therapy, uh, we were giving all the information, blah, blah, blah. Now, what do you want? What do you decide? And it was kind of no dialogue. It was kind of uh, information-based. It was medical, but the patient, everything was centered on the patient. He was the one making the decision. So the decision was unilateral. And I think it was probably a mistake. I don't think that the doctrine of informed consent was ever made uh, to do such a thing. And I think probably... The, the truth or the best way of doing things uh, reside in what we call the shared decision-making. And the shared decision-making, uh, again, um, apply the uh, principle of autonomy, but also beneficence, in the sense that it's a, relations, a relation that is center. Each of the uh, party has a role. The healthcare provider has a role to give the information, filter through his value and all of that, but he, and, and, and give all the objective facts. But he has also to listen to the patient who has his own values, his own limits, his own barrier. We mix them up, we mix those two things, and we finally got a decision that is uh, we call that bilateral, shared, and this is probably the only way to get to a good consent. You may think that the best way for a patient is go that way, take that decision, stop that treatment, or do not take that treatment. But the patient, for whatever reason, has, wants maybe to continue that, whatever is value, or religious can be value, or he wants to decide because he needs to see somebody before stopping that, even though he does understand. So in order to get the understanding between the two and get to a proper consent, we need to get to that shared decision-making. 
the why of consent. And, and if we understand that, we won't be as frustrated as sometimes we have in a discussion to get a consent. In a sense that if we admit that the basis of the consent, obtaining consent, the legal ground is the self-determination or the principle of autonomy in the ethical ground. We believe so much that the individual is the one that is able to make decisions concerning his own body, even though he is not a medical person. But with information, he will be able to make that, that we respect that principle. And this principle is so strong that even though if a patient cannot make decisions by himself, lacking capacity, somebody else will make decisions for them. So it's a little bit the sacrosanct preservation of the person, per se. We cannot do anything to a person without his consent. We see that there will be exceptions to that, very few, and not really in that field. Now, let's get to the consent. So, consent to care, it's not, uh, there's elements to that. And it's very strict, and we don't realize that. I um, I happened to have and did a master in law and and realized how really a lot of um, principles were in that. A lot of things needs to be considered and it's just not obtaining a consent kind of something mechanical. So I think we really need to understand the what's underneath. And there's elements, there's two elements in the consent and if you reflect this one, the information, patient needs to be informed. He needs to consent on something. And the second one is the authorization. It's not just the information. There will be a response. The authorization is the response. So the elements of information, again, this is not, you know, to your liking, uh, or I can talk about X, Y, and Z. No, it's not. And where is that coming from? This is all coming from the jurisprudence, the, the case law. Uh, also, as you know, there a whole textbook on consent. And this is uh, what the literature shows, that the must of an informed consent, of information to be given, should include, one, the nature of the illness, two, the nature of the procedure or the treatment, three, the probable foreseeable risk, four, the results anticipated. Not only you want to talk about the procedure, but what is expected to come out of that, the results. Five, the possible choices. And this is also a must. And this is something that we forget. There's never one therapy. There's never one way to go. There's always with or without. Therefore, we need to explain to the patient, fine, we'll stop the chemotherapy. This is what is going to happen. We continue the chemo, this is what's going to happen. So in either case, the risk and the benefits that are involved. And one of the, the two last but important things are the consequences of a refusal. Because as you know, what means consent means also patient can decide not to consent and then refuse. So if patients refuse any proposal that you, you suggest, that's his right, but he needs to understand what will happen. And the answer to questions. I think we should always conclude when we 
finish uh, giving the information to a patient, anything uh, was not clear, any question, and so on, like we'll ask you at the end of this uh, presentation. Now, the most troublesome part probably is the risk, and this is what gives us the most um, problematic. Uh, what kind of risk are we going to say? Uh, the most probable, the rare, the most important, significant, increase, and so on and so forth. So again, the jurisprudence or the case law is very mixed about that. And so there's no one firm conclusion. We will have to take risk by saying by all the risk. But obviously, uh, on a, a summary, in summary, I can tell you the following. The risk that we need to tell when we are talking about a procedure or treatment are the probable and the foreseeable. Uh, there is no reason to tell all the risk uh, when you read a, a medication example, when you offer a medication. Okay, I'll give you this uh, opioid or this anxiolytic and so on, and these are the side effects, and we mentioned some of the, the side effects. We are not going to mention all the book of side effects. This will take, first, too much time. Second, it will be almost impossible to make a decision. So what we should say, what we should say is that the most probable, the one that are most likely to happen, uh, if they are extremely rare but serious, the risk of death example or anaphylactic shock example in certain cases and certain medication probably should be told to patient. The, the risks that are known to everybody need not necessarily to be told. Example, if patients uh, need to do paracentesis, we know that there's a risk of infection the minute we put an IV tube or uh, a tube in, in any um, places in the body, there's a risk of infection. We probably will not have to say that, but if patient is diabetic or patient immunocompromised or is a high risk of developing a complication, probably we should insist more on that risk. Significant, serious risk. Again, what percentage consider, what is the percentage of occurrence do we need to consider for risk to be significant? And again, the literature is quite variable. Some say that the risk of 1% should be said, some say 5%, and then again, it's unconclusive, so we will have to take some risk when we present the information. Increase rates, when you have a choice, it's obvious that if a, a therapy procedure uh, offer or present more risk, it should, be, it should be said. Sometimes a procedure is better than another one, but it's more risky. So patients should know about that, that because that may influence his concept. If you do any type of research, especially for with medications and so forth, all the risks that are involved in that research should be told. It's not like you are in a clinical situation where the foreseeable, probable, but now all the risks are, even though they are infinite, you should tell them. Quality of information. The quality of the information should be, I'm sorry, objective. Uh, objective, as you know, as much as possible. We don't have always the objective.
it should be concise. Uh, you know, time is an essence, as we mentioned, and so we don't have time to 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 give a lecture, a full lecture, or to um, uh, talk you um, full lessons. So therefore, and also we should not forget that after a certain time, patient does not listen to you anymore, in a sense that he just is tired, his mind is running, uh, and then eventually uh, we are not going uh, to to uh, give too much information because it won't be received uh, pretty well after a certain time. So the information uh, should be understandable. Uh, again, we mentioned the language, so make sure that the language is uh, appropriate to the level of education of the patient we are talking to. And the criteria, it's a criteria for a reasonable person. Uh, so uh, we are not to give information to um, like a level of a professor or a high level, we have to be adapt the information to uh, the level of a reasonable person. What do we do with a patient? Do we say, uh, I don't want to know doctor, uh, don't tell me anything. And uh, of course, um, there is uh, some precedent for that. And if patient mention that uh, in front of you and uh, and we say example uh, television to my wife and, and we hear that sometimes I don't want to know anything about that I think we can accept that unless there is a consent that really needs that the patient understand example this is something that will probably not be acceptable uh, if patient uh, has to uh, decide for a certain surgical procedure. Uh, I think that he doesn't want to know anything about that and we need his sign consent to go because he has capacity. It probably will not be an acceptable thing. He will have to hear some of the information. The other, uh, the other question that we do have sometimes about consent is, is there such a thing as a directive privilege? And there is such a thing in a sense that sometimes the physician will decide not to tell all the information to for a patient because he won't be able to sustain that. One classic example that we use is a patient who has a hypertension and then uh, we have to to do a certain uh, therapy therapy that is minor and uh, we can tell him a few things, we are going to proceed to that, but maybe not too much in the minor details uh, because that may just increase his hypertension, give him, give him a, uh, so much worry anxiety that eventually will worsen his condition. So this has been accepted, but as you can see, this is something that's an exception and you understand that you will have to prove that they will, will have been some harm to the patient by saying the whole truth. You understand that again, this cannot be used for a consent to a major surgery example where the therapeutic privilege has no, no stand at all. Exception to consent, and I'm just mentioning here because um, you does not apply much in our palliative care setting, but just for general purposes that emergency and be careful here that's you you may know that in case of emergency 
you have to look in what's in the parentheses here. It's not because we are in emergency that we should not get any consent to proceed, to intubate a patient, to resuscitate a patient, to do things like that. It is only if you cannot obtain in due time the consent, the consent and the patient will suffer terrible uh, harm. So therefore, emergency, that's not the term. It is if you cannot obtain in time the consent. Exceptions stipulated by the law also, mandatory confinement, patient injuries for themselves or for uh, others, they can be confined in a psychiatric place, uh, treatment for certain medical condition, tuberculosis, tuberculosis or some diseases for public health, patient may need to be forced to uh, uh, go for the treatment, alcohol testing and so on and so forth. So the consent form, as you know, and we rely a lot of consent form, whatever is the form, proxy form and so on and so forth, we have to be careful because a consent form, it's an element of proof. It's not, it doesn't take away your duty of information. It's not because a patient is signing a document that here it is and no way everything is legal and there is no problem whatsoever. So it's an added element to a verbal disclosure, it's an addition, but it is not a replacement. And we've seen so often consent forms that are wrongly made that uh, obviously we can invalidate them very easily. Patients have the right to, to refuse any care if he has capacity, even life-saving. And uh, we had sometimes consent, um, not consent, but consult for ethics committee for patients who decide, uh, example, patients, uh, elderly women have a, a um, fracture of the hip, to the fall, and has many other ailments, and decided that she doesn't want to have any surgery to replace this hip. All call ethics committee that cannot be impossible. We call the the um, psychiatrist. No need. If patient has capacity, and if you can demonstrate that, if she understands what's the consequences of not having this hip repair, she can refuse, and that's it. There's no recourse. There's no way you can go further than that. She needs to understand, though, with or without the surgery, what will happen. What will be the consequences? Example, like pain may be a little bit more because every movement will be with a displaced fracture and so on and so forth. She needs to understand that. Now, let's uh, go back or let's go to um, forward, sorry, sorry, to uh, patients with lack of capacity. As we mentioned, the principle of autonomy or to determination is so uh, sacred that if the patient happened to lack capacity, Still, we need the permission of somebody, from somebody, to proceed and to do a treatment or to withhold the treatment. So the lack of capacity usually is made by the attending physician. Uh, there's no need for a real psychiatric evaluation, although we tend to do that, especially when, when major issues are at stake. It seems that they may have more practice than some of us can be good, not necessary. Uh, there's no legal standard for uh, evaluation of capacity. And, and this is a little bit um, sad uh, because um, this is why sometimes you, you will see divergence between physicians 
as well as far as capacity is concerned. Some will say, yeah, there's no capacity, not capacity. First of all, you have to understand that capacity is for one thing. It's not capacity for everything. It is for what we are, what is at stake for the treatment, the therapy that we are proposing, and it's not for everything else. So what is the best criteria, and probably you know the answer to that, to really uh, see if the patient has capacity. And the, the best one, the only one, is really to have the patient repeat what you told them. Explain in his own words what you said. That's the only way you can know if the patient really understand what was told, what was explained to him. Patients lack capacity. This has been determined, so what's next? So what's next? We will have various ways to obtain consent. One way is to have a healthcare proxy form. Then we have an agent who will make the decision. Or we can have instructional directives, oral or written. So DNR is one of that. Living we are there. The most are, are one of that, too. Background, uh, some background here. Most states, in most uh, United States, here I'm talking about the states, of course, this, what I'm saying here, may not be uh, valuable in, in some uh, other um, countries. Uh, there is a law providing for surrogate decision-making, and families are empowered to make decisions. In 68, it started in 68, that the introduction of the living will. In 90, we had the United States Self-Determination Act. And in 2010 only, which is not so long ago, the New York Family Healthcare Decision Act, and we'll see briefly what those are uh, giving us as far as legal background. So the Federal Patient Self-Determination Act requires medical facilities to maintain a policy ensuring compliance with state laws governing advanced directive. So all the facilities where a patient is hospitalized, admitted, have some sort of policy governing the advanced directive. The New York law requires medical facilities to honor both the written and the oral directives. So there is value to that, and so this is really legal background for all those. The healthcare proxy, so the healthcare proxy is not a person. The healthcare proxy is a form. It's a document that designates someone to be an agent with authority to make decisions, ideally representative of the preferences of the patient, but if preferences are not known according to the best interest of the patient, we'll come back to that, to two criteria to make decision for a patient lacking capacity. So it's a document and it's not a person. So only a person can, with capacity, can determine and can write that document. Sometimes we have family coming in and say, can we change that document? No, we cannot. Only a person with capacity can write that. So the two criteria for decision-making is the subjective judgment. If patients lack capacity and did not men did mention his preferences, we call that prior preferences, guided judgment. This will guide the decision that we are going to make for that patient. But if the patient did not mention anything and we are left taking the decision on our own, the best interest will be the criteria to make decisions.
And the best interest is kind of a balance between the benefits and harms. So we put that in a balance and which way will be the best way to go. So it's the best guidance tender when prior preferences are unknown. Consent to care, we send who can consent to care, the who. The who we say, a patient lack capacity, we said first it can be an agent if we have a proxy form. If we don't have, it will be a surrogate. And those are according to the law. And this is according to the New York state law. It may not be the same in other states and then not the same in other countries. So by order of priority, it will be a guardian if there is one. If there's no one, it goes to the spouse if they are not separated. If they are separated, it doesn't count. Or the domestic partner. The domestic partner has a role in that. Uh, there's a special form for that in New York. There's, if there's no spouse, then it goes down to a daughter and or a son, 18 years old. A parent, if there's no son, a brother and sister, and then after that, a close friend. And then again, for the close friend, there is a special form for that, and we need to demonstrate that it was really somebody that more than know the person, but really was having great um, communication with that patient, and not just once upon a while, and just know the person briefly. So the proxy designation, you probably are familiar with that, especially in social worker, I must say, because we obtain those documents oftentimes, we have those signed, and again, think about everything that is beyond that, what we say to the person when we sign those uh, consent. So it's important to understand the role of the proxy. And uh, unfortunately, oftentimes we have to guess. And so if you are part of, if of uh, helping somebody uh, to draw a proxy uh, form or to write a proxy form or a most, uh, please uh, ask them to indicate a little bit to that person what they would like to, to be. Because again, to be done to them. Because friends, family um, may have difficulty to do so. And sometimes, remember what I said at the beginning, we all have our own um, values, our own demons, if I can say at times also, our own interest also, and we may not always make the decision like if that patient would have liked to be done. A physician can be appointed an agent, and it does happen sometimes. A lot of people do not have anybody, but this physician cannot be the attending physician of that person. So again, be careful of conflict of interest that we should avoid at all cost. So the requirements, and then again, I mentioned that seems to be basic to all of you, but uh, you don't know how often times, or you may, uh, how often times when we will call on an ethics uh, consult, when we are reviewing the document to make sure that it's the right proxy how oftentimes the document was wrong. Uh, either there was an element missing uh, and it was finally uh, invalid and therefore we are uh, have to go under the surrogate and not the agent for the healthy proxy. So we cannot use that document. So make sure it is done properly. Uh, and so you know the requirement just looking very fast here name of the patient, um, the principal intends the agent to have authority to have 
and make healthcare decisions on patients' behalf must be signed, must be signed and dated by the patient. If it's not signed, even though you say and you come and I was there, uh, I am one of the two witnesses and he, he said that, he said that person and we have that. Oftentimes family, they are angry. Uh, but it's not signed and dated, so forget about that. It's not a good document. Uh, alternative agent can be named, but not necessarily so. And uh, the statement of, of especially artificial hydration nutrition, if possible, should be really um, placed there. So you have a form, healthcare proxy form. Here, this is one of the form that we tend to use here in New York State, and it's uh, an, an easy form to use, but Every line is important. The living wills, the living wills, they are very interesting. It's an instruction given by an adult, either orally, and this is something we forget. It can be also orally. Of course, it is more difficult to prove that the patient told me such and such a night we were talking about uh, this condition being on a ventilator example, that this patient mentioned to me never wanted to be on a ventilator. So we may consider that as a oral living will, but it's not as good probably as if it was in writing. It's not obvious, as evident as. Um, but uh, you um, never, never are wrong by indicated at any period of your lifetime what you would like to be done because you never know if one day that will be useful to self to serve your best interest. So uh, again, those living wills uh, ha are in effect since '68. There is uh, we don't have a special form, although any form can be suffice to have the three main element for any document for consent, and this is for the will, this is for everything. It has to be signed by the person and dated, and it has to be witnessed by two persons, adult. So at all time we have a document, make sure that those three requirements are necessary, otherwise the document is not valid. So no matter the form, it, it, we don't have to have the, the, the right form, any form if it contains that element it can be good. Just to mention here on passant, and I said that the, the time is running, that the completion of the living will is only by 25%. And that was documentation from the NHPCO in 13. Maybe it's slightly different now, but not so much so. People are afraid to do that. They seem like if they write that, they will, it will just hasten that. I don't know what is it, but it's a bit like the will. People wait too long. And uh, it can be a very useful document. You can put a lot of things. It does not need to be done in front of a um, notary. Uh, it's just, as we mentioned before, the requirements are two witnesses, adult witnesses. So again, why is that poorly completed? Multiple, multiple reasons. Uh, we don't understand what they are. Uh, we question their use. The, uh, sometimes cultural, ethical reason, um, the terminology. You know that you can draw your own and you can put all kinds of conditions in that. And uh, who knows if one day it will be really extremely important 
because it will be respectful to uh, your wishes. Off note, if you put too many things in your living will, too many um, conditions, it will have to be interpreted. And so that may be more difficult than if you are more vague and yet leave more um, way to interpretation and be less limited. So this is one form of living well, multiple forms, they don't need to be. The molds also, and I will go fast on that because I think that you all know those documents, you all have seen those documents. The molds is a form that is signed by the physician after it did discuss with a patient various, um, various directives concerning the DNR, the antibiotics, the IV fluid, the feeding tubes, the artificial hydration, the mechanical ventilation, and any other medical. So it's more comprehensive. Not all of that needs to be uh, discussed, and it is legal in uh, New York. So the nursing homes are really um, using them um, a lot, and I think it is can be very useful if it's done properly. Again, signature needs to be there, and the date, the date, the date, the date. So again, this is just an example. I'm concluding here uh, before taking some question that consent is embedded in communication, and then it is subject to its barrier. I hope that at least if it is the only part that you um, take home from that lecture, it's that, and be conscious of that uh, barriers, um, because they are there. Uh, when patient lacks capacity, then the rules of obtaining consent are applied to advanced directive. We need to know all those rules concerning the advanced directive. It is purely legal, uh, and we need to know the rules of the area where we do practice. Um, consent, there's lots of legal rules of consent. It's not, we don't say what we want to say, but what it is required to say. Um, the, I'm concluding on two things here that the clinician must be comfortable with the agent. It's not because a person is agent that we need to respect everything. We can contest the agent requirement. If it does not make sense, we need to contest that and find another way to have the decision made. And most likely, we will need probably to refer to ethics committee. Also, one important thing, Previously expressed wishes need to be contextualized. All those living ones, other directive, are to be applied in irreversible condition. They do not apply to reversible condition. And we've seen those cases over and over again. Patient, elderly patient, comes to us and has a pneumonia, needs to be intubated. Um, to reverse this pneumonia that's quite severe, but he has a good chance to make pull it through. It's just a temporary measure, and sometimes families say no. They come here. I have the healthcare proxy form, uh, or I have a living will, and he said no intubation, no CPR, no nothing. We stop here, and sometimes we do oppose that, and we have to oppose that. If it is some things that you can reverse, it is an acute situation, some things that can be repairable, fixable, we have to ignore those living well. We, it will always be time after that to
to come back and say, well, we made a mistake. We thought it was reversible. It was a condition that could have been, you know, uh, just temporary, but it is not. Patient remain on event. And then, oh, here we are. We have a living will. or oh, we have a document saying you did not want that. Then now it becomes an irreversible condition, and therefore we are going to respect the wish of the patient by uh, stopping or withholding the vent. So again, I think this is the most uh, interesting, uh, one of the most interesting topics, shall I say, that we do because as you can see, it is embedded in communication and communication is probably one of the most difficult things that we do uh, in, in, in our profession. And if we realize all that, start there. So now, let me, um, bibliography is there, there's a lot of, uh, of documents uh, written on that. Uh, please um, continue your reading according to your interest. Now, I have an interesting question here. And question, let me read it. What if there is a conflict between the proxy and the emergency contact or the family? Well, you know that there is often um, a conflict. A conflict is inevitable. Uh, it, it's not because we have a form, uh, any type of form that we will not have. Because even though we have a form, the proxy, uh, or a living will, we have to give interpretation to that form. And this is where probably the conflict will come from. Um, a example, I just give you an example prior answering that question. Uh, the, the fact that sometimes the proxy will say, hey, no intubation in this case, but the medical team think that we should intubate because it's a reversible condition. We give a chance to the patient. Uh, there's some good coming out of that. And so therefore, they may not want to pursue that um, if, it, uh, if it is an emergency. In the case of an emergency, we don't have time to go to an ethics committee and then discuss that back and forth and back and forth. So I think that in, in that time, we have to go for what will be the less uh, harmful to the patient. And so probably this is what we do see sometimes in emergency room. Because as you know, the emergency room, they are trained to reverse what they do see. And they want to give a chance to the patients. But sometimes there is no chance. And if we are really, really um, a, how, how can I say, if, if there is a little bit of a time, we can have an arbitrary. Uh, but if it is something that needs to be done right away, we can let that thing happen. We can always extubate a patient. That is very easy. We can always take off of, I don't know, an IV fluid or whatever. I'm not sure what we do have here. We can have a, a conflict on, on what kind of therapy we can have. Usually it's the intubation and it is resuscitation. And this is the two main major things that we will have a conflict on. So we can always change our mind after that. After the emergency situation is cleared up, we can always ask an ethics committee and say, hey, listen, something went wrong here, uh, and, and we can reverse the decision. So it is, it is, you know, this is all human decision making, and it's part of communication, as I mentioned. And this is not something that is so objective that we can have it right at all times. Now, another question is that if an unresponsive patient has both healthcare proxy and living wills, 
either oral or written, all right, which one take precedent on the other? So the healthcare proxy, the agent, the healthcare proxy is the agent, let's say a, a person is named to represent the patient. And he is lucky enough to have a living will that is either oral or you mentioned. So you have indication. And as you know, the healthcare proxy or any surrogate, when they make decision, they have to make decision either in the previous preferences expressed of the patient if they, they are known. In this case, they are known because we have a living will. And if they are not known, we go with the best interest. So now, there's no, um, there's no precedent. Both are together. The healthcare agent will be the one, the healthcare proxy will be, the healthcare agent will, mean, will be, I'm sorry, the one who will make the decision, and will make the decision uh, on the express wishes of the patient uh, in express in the living will. How is a surrogate decision maker appointed? Well, a surrogate decision maker is not appointed. This is a pure legal, legal uh, statute here, and it it goes by itself. If a patient doesn't have a guardian, or the patient doesn't have appointed, the only appointed person who can respond for you is the healthcare proxy, is the agent by the healthcare proxy for. This is the only way you can appoint somebody. The other, if you don't have done that, and a patient happened to lack capacity for whatever reason it is, then the law will take into office. First, the guardian. There's no guardian. And most of the time, we don't need to go, especially for, <clears throat> for short-term decision-making, for clinical decision-making, uh, to this continue event. We don't need a guardian necessarily for that. We need a guardian when we have long-term decision-making. So you have no guardian, then it will go to the spouse. No spouse, it go down the, uh, down the scale that we mentioned through the hierarchy, the hierarchy of, the, uh, of the form. And this is in New York, but this is also in many other, I know that is the same in, in, in Canada, for example, maybe the same in some other country. It makes sense, it just go with the person you need. So you don't appoint nobody except the agent by the healthcare proxy for. So I think that time is, is running out. Thank you very much for your question. This is really interesting. As you can see, uh, the debate is uh, open now. Um, and um, it, it's not simple. I must, uh, I must confess that uh, if you look at some, not necessarily tough, but even uh, easy, uh, there's something underneath. So thank you for uh, your attendance. Um, this is all the time we have for question here. Let me uh, invite you to the next uh, webinar. It will be on December the 1st, um, and it will be given by uh, Dr. Edison Ahmed. She is a PharmD, Director of Pharmacy Internship at the MGHS Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care, and she will talk about the use of methadone in pain management. Thank you and hoping to see you soon.